Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zacharin, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books and in Intellectual History. Today I'm speaking with Matt Zwolinski and John Tomasi about their new book, The Individualists, Radicals, Reactionaries, and the Struggle for the Soul of Libertarianism. Matt is Professor of Philosophy at the University of San Diego, and John is the President of Heterodox Academy in New York City. The Individualists examines the birth and evolutions of libertarianism, a political philosophy that advocates for free markets and limited government. Though today libertarianism is often associated with the political right, its historical origins trace all the way back to thinkers who also identified as communists. Matt and John help us make sense of this historical puzzle, laying out the thinkers, movements, and events that have shaped the meaning and ideas of libertarianism. Matt and John, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thanks, Caleb. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. This was a, this was a, a really interesting read and and just a really really clear, well written book. And I think if you know for anyone out there who who wants to know anything about libertarianism, I think that this would be like the place to start uh, more than just, you know, a, uh, a polemical book. This book really, really does just lay out so many different uh, aspects of libertarianism that I think would be really valuable to, to intellectual historians and, and to really anyone interested in the topic. But before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you could both just tell me a little bit about yourselves and how you two came to write this book together. And uh, Matt, why don't you start? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Kyle. I appreciate that. Um, so I'm a I'm a philosophy professor. Uh, I do work in political philosophy, and uh, I've had really since I got into academia, I've I've had an interest in and an attraction to libertarian ideas. Uh, a friend of mine gave me a, a copy of uh, a book by Ayn Rand in, when I was an undergraduate in college, and I, I found the ideas there really exhilarating, exciting, and I just kind of dove into it uh, wholeheartedly. Uh, and then in grad school, uh, I found that those ideas maybe weren't quite as solid uh, as I imagined in my undergraduate days. Uh, I started to see weaknesses in arguments that I thought to be uh, quite solid beforehand um, and challenges kind of uh, from different political perspectives, uh, in particular challenges of relating to social justice and the the apparent neglect that libertarian thought has for considerations of social and distributive justice. And, and those those troubled me. Uh, not quite to the extent that I abandoned my libertarianism, but uh, to the extent that I thought that it needed to be reconceived. Uh, and so I embarked upon this this long project to sort of rethinking libertarian ideas, uh, trying to see if there was a way of perhaps making libertarian arguments stronger and making libertarian ideas compatible with ideas of social justice, uh, all of which led me to uh, start this project that I referred to as, as Bleeding Heart Libertarianism, uh, which is a, a group blog of, of academics um, who were kind of in a similar situation as, as I was. Um, and, and we've been kind of pursuing those ideas ever since, um, kind of in a way culminating with, uh, with this book as kind of like latest manifestation of that, uh, that project. I came to political philosophy and to libertarianism later, th- later than Matt did. 
I began philosophy in grad school, interested in, in epistemology, um, but became interested along the way, I think my first year in grad school in political philosophy and came across libertarianism, again, relatively late, <laughs> late in life. And I was just, just electrified by the, the clarity, the certainty, the kind of um, geometric precision of the view, at least as I saw it, as I saw it then. And it also, it appealed to some sort of basic world, a basic worldview that I have, the importance of individual agency, the idea that freedom matters for every person everywhere. And so for a while during graduate school, I was a pretty hardcore Orthodox Nozickian. When I was in grad school at Oxford, the only person who I could really talk honestly and openly about political philosophy with was G.A. Cohen, who was, um, you know, obviously a famous Marxist philosopher. And Marxists and libertarians have always had this weird, <laughs> this kind of this weird <laughs> interest and antipathy towards each other. But Jerry and I, was all, it was always friendship, but also just intellectual excitement. And along the way, I wrote, I wrote a book um, called Free Market Fairness that attempted to combine ideas um, of, of John, John Rawls with ideas of Friedrich Hayek. It is an economic liberty, personal autonomy in the economic realm with some kind of an idea that we're all in this together. And so I was part of the Bleeding Heart um, crew too, I suppose. And this project began a long time ago when Princeton approached me just after Free Market Fairness came out and asked me if I would write a short um, introduction to libertarianism. And I said, yes. And then as Matt and I, and I called Matt into the project with me and Matt and I decided to, to do it together since we both had this bleeding heart kind of angle we were interested in. And um, you know, the book became an intellectual history, just intellectual, not, not the movement stuff. And it became a much longer project than, than, <laughs> than Matt or I could possibly have imagined. And we watched the history grow and change um, as, as we wrote the book. But that was that's that's a and, and and now as you mentioned as as you as you mentioned I left Brown a year ago to become president of Heterodox Academy, which is a group of of about uh, five thousand five hundred um, professors all around the world, sixty four countries, who are committed to the ideas of open inquiry, uh, viewpoint diversity, and constructive disagreement. We're evenly divided between people on the left and people on the right, but we all share a core commitment to the idea of trying to work from the inside in positive ways to encourage our universities to be the kind of wonderful places for their exploration ideas that they might be. So that's the that's the personal story with a little bit of the philosophy uh, mixed in. So before diving into the varieties of libertarianism, uh, I was wondering if each of you could sort of define libertarianism and if there's, you know, any area of disagreement uh, that you two have about what constitutes libertarianism or what doesn't. This is a question that John and I spent uh, many, many conversations happy uh, talking hours. over. Many happy hours. Many happy hours. <laughs> yes. Uh, happy yeah, happy days. Happy weeks. Happy hours. I mean, happy mornings. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a contested question, uh, and it's a question that nobody likes to contest in a way more than libertarians themselves. Uh, so um, there's this sort of endless and ongoing debate among libertarians about who counts as a real libertarian, uh, a, a, a badge that's worn with a certain kind of honor among uh, among the, the inner the inner circles, uh, and who's who's on the outside, right? Who's who's a fake libertarian? Who's um, you know how how exactly we're to draw the conditions uh, of libertarianism in a way that. You know, captures exactly you know the people that we we see as as paradigmatically libertarian and 
um, and excludes other people? That's a it's a profoundly difficult question that, that John and I struggled with. I interrupt yeah. just I just thought of something. Okay. We should call them linos, libertarians in name only. <laughs> we wouldn't uh -huh. I'm just I'm just working on that. Just that anyway. Yeah, all right. <laughs> we may be, yeah, we so may, it's we may be linos, but anyway. We we might be. I'm sure somebody would think so. Um, so 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 John and I struggled. We tried to come up with all right. What are the what's the set of necessary and sufficient conditions that um, defines libertarianism in exactly the right way? Uh, and eventually, we came to the conclusion that that's a, an impossible task. Uh, there there just isn't any such set of conditions that um, that works to. Um, to capture people as diverse as, right, like, so Ayn Rand, uh, Robert Nozick, uh, Murray Rothbard, Friedrich Hayek, um, right? These are very, very different thinkers, as we'll talk about as this interview progresses. Uh, you know, some of them are, are consequentialists, some of them are natural rights theorists, some of them are kind of Kantian deontologists, uh, some of them are anarchists who believe that there ought not to be any state at all. Some of them are what's called minimal status, right? Who believe that there should be some government, but it should be a strictly limited government, limited to the protection of individual rights through a police system, a court system, a military, maybe. Uh, so, you know, how how do you capture such diversity of views in a single definition? What John and I ultimately settled on was um, the idea that libertarianism is is not a single view, really, but a family of views. Uh, and it's a family of views defined by commitment to a, a cluster of concepts, um, right? So each of which can be understood in, in different ways, kind of more or less strictly, and each of which can be combined with the other concepts in a more or less systematic way. Uh, and so you get thinkers that are sort of more or less libertarianism, depending on how they understand and define these concepts um, without necessarily sort of a single privileged libertarian view uh, emerging out of that. Um, so John, do you want to, do you want to explain the idea of a cluster cluster concept a, a bit more, run them through some of the ideas? Well, why don't you, why don't you? <laughs> sure. So, um, so in the book, we, we define libertarianism in terms of its, you know, commitment to a, a set of concepts the first of which is, and in ways the most fundamental of which is private property. Um, so libertarians take property rights very seriously. Um, in fact, some people argue that that is the defining concept of libertarianism. Uh, we don't go quite that far, but we do think it's a central uh, commitment of libertarianism. Um, libertarians are skeptical of political authority um, at the extreme that takes the form of anarchism, but uh, even libertarians who are not anarchists are uh, heavily skeptical of uh, political authority, claims to political authority, believe that um, claims to political authority are often overstated, that the state claims for itself the power and authority to do things that it uh, actually lacks. Uh, libertarians believe in free markets, uh, libertarians think that markets are both economically efficient as a way of organizing uh, production and distribution of various goods in society, um, but also that they have a, a moral character to them that is often unappreciated. So it's not just that they work well, uh, it's that markets 
are both a phenomenon that emerge when we respect individual rights, um, and right. So they're they're the result of of treating individuals um, as we morally ought to treat them, uh, and that they have certain morally virtuous characteristics once they're instantiated. Um, libertarians believe in freedom, uh, specifically a kind of negative conception of freedom, uh, and libertarians are individualists. Um, they believe in the explanatory significance of individual choice and individual agency and in the moral significance of uh, an importance of treating individuals as ends in themselves. Um, and then finally, uh, libertarians believe in the explanatory and normative significance of what they call spontaneous order, the uh, ability of societies to organize themselves in a sense from the bottom up uh, without the need for any top-down centralized uh, planner to run their economy, to run their personal lives, uh, to uh, instantiate virtue in a society. Uh, libertarians believe that order is something that emerges from individual choice rather than something to be imposed upon them uh, by authority. You know, Matt, that's nice. I'll just add to that, that um, sort of the way we came to that idea of a cluster concept was that we were first trying to find sets of necessary and sufficient conditions to uh, identify libertarians. And there are some libertarians, especially in the 20th century, who provide such um, such definitions, such criteria, for example, Rothbard in some, in some moments. And what we came to realize was that when you, look, when you broaden the historical lens, and start seeing other people, other figures, sometimes in other countries, who have these same sets of commitments, they don't, they can't, you can't, no, no set of necessary and sufficient conditions can, can capture them. So Matt and I kind of shifted our, our framework, instead of asking for necessary and sufficient conditions, we imagined ourselves being assigned the task of developing facial recognition software that could somehow identify all the diverse members of the libertarian family Strangely, strange and different that they might be, right? The, 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 the dark eyes of the difficult aunt, the uncle with a studious chin, all these different sort of types and characters through time had something in common. And what we decided was what they had in common was those set of characteristics that Matt just described. Some of them have them more prominently than others and more intensely than others, but they all have all four, all, all that, that what the six concepts and they have them like an intensive, an intensified, integrated set. And people who have that, those characteristics put together that way, they have the face of the libertarian family in all its variety. So that's kind of how we came to that that approach. Yeah, I think I think that that will uh, that that framing will be useful in going through the history that you that you guys outline in chapter two. Uh, you you describe three areas eras of uh, libertarian thought. The first of which you two define as primordial libertarianism. Uh, and I was wondering, you know, what was this early iteration of libertarianism like? Well, let, let me, if I may, Matt, may I take that one? Let me, yeah. Let, let me approach that um, to sort of again how we how we came to it ourselves. And what we what we think is that most people people we're both philosophers. We spend you know, our time in the academy. Most people that we know think that they know what libertarianism is, and they think that libertarianism is a distinctively American doctrine that emerged sometime in the, in the mid, late 20th century. And so they associate libertarianism with Rand, Rothbard, Mises, Hayek, 
Um, Robert Nozick, especially among philosophers, philosophers often act as though, and they teach their students sometimes, alas, as though the libertarian doctrine sprang fresh from the fertile mind of the young Robert Nozick. But there's this widespread idea um, that most people we think have that they know what libertarianism is, and it's that a doctrine defined by those people in that from that period. And what we point out as we sort of digging into the start digging into the history is that, uh, in fact, libertarianism began much earlier. It began at the almost the exact midpoint of the 19th century. It began first, I think, in France as a recognizable doctrine, but in, in England at about the same time. And so it's a doctrine that that begins with some remarkable thinkers uh, in the in the France and in England, Bastiat, for example. Um, and just thinking about these, thinking about these cluster concept ideas in ways that were distinctly recognized to be libertarian. And what these people did, what these thinkers did for a variety of reasons, and, and pushing back against perceived threats of socialism, especially in the European context, which is the primordial period of libertarianism, they took the ideas of the, of the earlier classical liberals, the sort of gentler, more compromised ideas of Adam Smith um, and, and others, Trenchard and Gordon and many others. And they took these gentle ideas that pointed in the direction of free markets, skepticism of, the, of authority, respect for spontaneous order, and so on. And they took those ideas and they radicalized them. They saw that in the, their view was that in the face of the socialist threat, you had to just take these ideas to the very farthest extreme, because if you compromised at all, you'd start sliding down the road to serfdom. Again, this is in the in the, in the mid mid 20th century. Matt, do you want to say more about the specific thinkers in that era? Yeah, uh, mid mid 19th century. I, I the mid 19th century. Say, but yeah, no, that's 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 right. Um, and that's that's I think a a really important fact about libertarianism. Um, right. So if you want to understand what libertarianism is, it's helpful to contrast the libertarians that we identify in the 19th century with earlier classical liberal thinkers like John Locke or Adam Smith or David Hume. Um, so people had talked about markets before the 19th century and the, the value of markets and the importance of markets. People had talked about the necessity of limiting government power before the 19th century. People had talked about individualism before the 19th century. But what changed in the middle of the 19th century was both, as John said, the radicalization of these ideas. So while earlier classical liberals had talked about a presumption of liberty, the idea that um, we ought to err on the side of individual liberty unless some really good reason can be shown for uh, transgressing individual liberty in the name of the common good or whatever. Um, libertarians change that presumption into a kind of moral absolute. Um, so individual liberty was no longer merely one value to be balanced among others, uh, but rather the sole value. Uh, so um, with that change to absolutism, there came to be also a change from pluralism to a kind of monism, right? So you would have not a whole bunch of values that needed to be kind of balanced and coordinated together in this in this complicated and maybe mushy sort of way, right? But a single fundamental value, whether it's property rights or liberty, from which all other values are to spring derivatively. Um, so you get a kind of monism, you get a kind of radicalism, um, and you get a kind of systematicity 
um, in libertarianism that is likewise lacking in earlier classical liberal thinkers. And what I mean by that is that um, when you read some of these libertarian thinkers, right, you often see their theories taking the form of um, kind of a, a first principle, a statement of and derivation of a first principle um, combined with a spelling out of the implication of that principle for all the other questions of political philosophy. So you see this very clearly, for instance, in Herbert Spencer, uh, who in 1851 published his, his treatise, essentially the first, I think, systematic libertarian treatise called Social Statics, where he spells out this first principle, what he calls the law of equal freedom. Um, and then the rest of the book is explaining what it means to take the law of equal freedom seriously for questions about voting, for questions about the rights of women and children, for questions about imperialism, for questions about uh, municipal sewer systems. <laughs> Literally, there's a chapter in the book on that. Um, it's it's this right. It's this idea that you know you've got this one basic principle, and once you've got that principle, all of the rest of political philosophy is just a matter of derivations from that principle. And you see that in Spencer, and you see that in a lot of the later 20th century libertarians as well, uh, people like Ayn Rand, uh, people like Murray Rothbard. Um, and but it's it's new in the 19th century. You don't really see that kind of of thought. Uh, in the earlier classical liberals. Uh, so it's a distinctive kind of political philosophy that, that we saw as emerging. Um, and again, I think, as John mentioned, it's what drove that was the threat of socialism in Britain and France as a as a imminent political threat, um, right? A revolutionary force that was literally marching in the streets and threatening to, as the libertarians saw it, uh, threatening to enslave uh, society to the state. And, and and I can add just historically, so in 1848, we have revolutions going across, going on across Europe. And it's a really striking, um, I won't say coincidence, but a kind of striking fact that within about 14 months, um, at the exact midpoint of the 19th century, we see these three recognizable, three distinct recognizably libertarian documents being produced. Um, Bastiat's The Laws, Herbert Spencer's Social Statics, and my favorite of, the, of, that, of, that, of that triumvirate, uh, Molinari's, Molinari, The production, production of Security. And what we see in all of those, but maybe in Molinari most, most, most explicitly, is this idea of this, this classical libertarian, this, this what would later become a classic libertarian move of radicalizing premises and taking them to their extreme. So in that essay, Molinari says, well, we see that markets are really effective at producing many goods, lots of different kinds of goods. Let's take that idea all the way down. And Molinari says maybe markets can produce every good, including, for example, secure, security. Security meaning the police, police and, and judges. And so Molinari takes this idea that markets are good things from the classical liberals and then runs it in this radicalized libertarian way into this extreme doctrine that basically leaves no room for the state at all because markets can, 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 can provide that as well. It's worth pointing out, and we'll say more about this as we go, no doubt, but in the 20th, in the, sorry, the 19th century, is that striking moment, that 14-month period in the middle of the, 19th, middle of the 19th century happened in Europe, things are starting to stir differently in, the, in America. And the early American libertarians, this, again, part of the first wave, we, we, we count the Americans and the Europeans as part of that primordial primordial period, the libertarianism that arose in America 
arose from dis different causes and in very different ways. So in America, um, the threat of socialism was not as lively or as, as real. There were socialist communities, but they were just kind of things off to the side here and there. They weren't really a threat to take over the state and run, run things. Libertarians, though, had something that the Europeans didn't have. Libertarians as people concerned for liberty. They, they had uh, slavery, uh, and slavery not just often distant colonies, but slavery's right, right, slavery right next door. And in, in the, and, in the, and in the figure of enslaved peoples, the first American libertarians saw the violation of liberty in its most pure and extreme and repulsive form. So the early libertarians in America developed their libertarian views out of their abhorrence of the fact of slavery. And this led them, this led them to radicalize their doctrine in different directions that would be surprising, I suppose, to most contemporary libertarians. So, for example, they saw that people, the enslaved people did not own their, their freedom or own themselves, nor did they own their labor that was being taken from them. And they derived from that this idea, a la Locke, but again, now radicalizing it and mixing in a good healthy dose of Proudhon. The early American libertarians were enthusiastic about Proudhon's socialism. They would very, very opposed to the Marxian version of Proudhon's socialism, which was state-based, but they, they were individualists, they were anarchists, and they thought that just as slaves own their, enslaved people own their labor, every worker owns his or her labor. And this led many of them to be highly skeptical of wage labor, of the forms of capitalism that they saw around themselves. They were individualists, anarchists first, and they didn't think that being an individualist and an anarchist, and therefore a libertarian, meant that they had to be pro-capitalist. They advocated you know, freedom across all these areas, but with a kind of a socialist, uh, a, a lock-turned socialist um, perspective. So in each case, the, 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 the issues are more generalizable now, still thinking about this first period. You have this idea of a, a doctrine with these different characteristics intensifying and radicalizing the classical liberal ideas, but people interpret what those principles mean in different ways, in different social contexts. So in England and in France, we have the libertarians pushing against socialism, and that led them to emphasize certain of the, of the facial characteristics more strongly than some others. In the U.S., in America, in early America, we had the same libertarian learning, leanings and pushes, but they were pushing against a different feature, a different threat, um, slavery. And in America, the, that commitment to liber that extreme commitment to libertarianism, that uncompromising commitment to individual freedom, led the early American libertarians to be extremely what we would now call progressive on issues of racial justice, for example. They didn't talk much about race or hardly at all about race. They talked about enslaved people and they thought they should be freed. And they had the idea that slavery should be abolished immediately, not down the road. They, did, they were really, really opposed to the way they did it in Britain. In, in Britain, in their colonies, they gradually phased out slavery. They even had payments made to the slave owners to sort of pave the way in a very classical liberal way to think about the, the future society, having slave owners living among the slaves. How could they be organized to live peacefully with each other? Not the libertarians in America. They demanded immediate um, abolition, not, not, not tomorrow, but today. And they demanded that the enslaved peoples should receive the compensation not the enslavers that thought it was a monstrous idea that the people who've been holding slaves should be compensated for that unjust property. So in America, you find this radical socialist 
um, you know, uncompromising commitment to the rights of enslaved peoples um, that you don't find in some ways later on in the history of libertarian thought, as we can talk about later on. But the big the big point is that there are these three areas of three areas of libertarian thought that primor primordial era we just described, then the more familiar Cold War era as we call it, and now the contemporary what we think of as the third wave, a more contested period. And in every case, libertarians radicalize their principles but always in respect to and in the context of their specific historical context. And that leads libertarianism to have very different valences, sometimes very radical, sometimes more reactionary. And the same doctrine has a different look, a different hue in different historical contexts. Yeah, so so following up on, on that, that framing that you put at the end of just the, the differences between the primordial libertarianism versus uh, the other two waves that you that you cover, the Cold War libertarianism and third wave libertarianism, uh, how, how do Cold War libertarianism and third wave libertarianism differ uh, from, from this early libertarianism? A number of ways. Um, so as we mentioned about the 19th century libertarianism, um, the, the most familiar forms of libertarianism in the 19th century were not in America, but in Britain and France. Uh, if, if people who are familiar with libertarianism from its current manifestation go back and they read Bastiat, they'll see something fairly familiar. In fact, they often do. Bastiat's still a, a fairly popular figure among, uh, among libertarians today. Uh, similarly with Herbert Spencer, he's not as widely read today as, as Bastiat, but if you were to look at the, the writings of Herbert Spencer, it looks like what you would find in, in a Rothbard or a Rand. The 19th century American libertarianism, on the other hand, looks quite alien, uh, quite different from what we recognize as libertarianism today. So what changes in the 20th century is a couple of things. First of all, the center of gravity of libertarianism shifts from Britain and France to the United States. So most of the most famous libertarian theorists of the 20th century were in America, uh, at least uh, for much of their lives. Many of them were immigrants. Uh, so Ayn Rand, for instance, was an immigrant from Russia. Uh, Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises were immigrants from uh, Austria. Um, but most of the work that's being done, most of the organization and institutions that are associated with libertarianism exist in the United States. So there's this massive shift of the center of gravity from libertarianism towards the United States and the form that libertarianism takes in the United States over the course of the 20th century, interestingly, looks pretty unlike American libertarianism of the 19th century, but it looks a lot like libertarianism in Britain and France in the 19th century. That's right. So okay. what's going on there? Right. The, the hypothesis that we explore in this book is that the reason that libertarianism looked so unusual in 19th century American was that it was reacting to slavery rather than to socialism. There was no real socialist threat in 19th century America for libertarianism to react against and for libertarianism to define itself in opposition to. In the 20th century, on the other hand, socialism did come to be perceived as a threat to America. Um, in, in several different ways. So there was the rise of international socialism through the creation and expansion of the Soviet Union. A lot of people in the United States saw the Soviet Union and the, the growth uh, and, and military dominance of the Soviet Union as a threat to capitalism and freedom worldwide. 
Uh, and on a domestic level, a lot of people worried, a lot of early libertarians certainly worried that socialism would come to the United States, not through military conquests, but through domestic political change. Um, many libertarians saw the New Deal as a kind of crucial moment uh, in this in this story uh, and worried that, you know, in response to the Great Depression, that the um, the government of the United States through FDR would come to adopt many of the ideals and policies of communism um, in the United States, uh, and that this was something to be resisted um, to the utmost. Uh, and so you saw as, as this socialist threat came to be perceived as, as more real and more imminent in the United States, that the nature of libertarian thinking in the United States shifted dramatically from the kind of anti-slavery, almost pro-socialist uh, form it took in the 19th century to something that looked an awful lot like what Britain and France were doing when they were facing their own socialist threat in the 19th century. Um, a, a much greater emphasis on economic liberty, right? So in the 19th century, you saw American liberty libertarians talking a lot about um, social issues, about women's equality. Um, they were talking about uh, the, the possible immorality of institutions like interest, you know, interest on loans, um, rent on landed property. A lot of libertarians in the 19th century thought that these things were quite possibly immoral and incompatible with libertarian principles. By the 20th century, that's almost all gone. Uh, it's a hard line on economic liberty. Any kind of voluntary traction, transaction is permissible. Ownership in, in land or any other kind of physical property is morally legitimate. And we need to defend those principles against any and all threats. Um, so the economic liberty both takes kind of center stage in terms of uh, you know, the kinds of issues that the libertarians are concerned about, crowding out uh, the, the broader social concerns of the earlier 19th century libertarians. And it's hardened um, uh, in a way that puts to the side the earlier questions that 19th century libertarians had raised about the justice of capitalism as it actually exists in the real world, as opposed to um, some utopian dream that we might conceive of. Um, you also see polit on a political level, there is a kind of shift in alliances that takes place, right? So uh, libertarians had a lot of concerns about the New Deal and about the growth of the state that took place in the wake of the New Deal, believe that those changes need to be resisted to the utmost and by any means. Uh, and in pursuit of that resistance, they found ready allies among conservatives, among people who maybe agreed with them about the evil of the New Deal, even though they disagreed about uh, a lot of other things that libertarians believe. They weren't about to advocate you know, legalizing drugs or legalizing prostitution or anything like that. Um, but they at least had this common enemy in FDR and the New Deal and the growth of the state. And so libertarians came to make common cause with uh, many of these conservative organizations, with many of these conservative intellectuals. And as a result, libertarianism came to take on this kind of right-wing valence in the 20th century that still, I think, lingers on to this day in the popular perception of libertarianism, right? If you were to ask people today, is libertarianism a right-wing or a left-wing view? Most people are probably going to say it's a right-wing view. 
And our view is that that perception is a product of the prominence of 20th century libertarianism in people's imagination, right? We think of libertarianism as a right-wing view because we're calling to mind the, the way that libertarianism looked for most of the 20th century. But if you look back to the 19th century, um, things were very, very different then. Uh, even in Britain and France, uh, libertarianism looked at least like a kind of middle of the road view, if not a left wing kind of view. Bastiat, for instance, sat on the left side of the French assembly um, when he served in uh, in the French government in the uh, in the mid 19th century. Um, so this this thing, this character, this idea that uh, libertarianism is conservative or right wing view, we argue that's that's not something that's inherent in libertarian principles themselves. That's a byproduct of the particular context in which libertarianism developed over the course of the 20th century. Matt, may, may I add something to that too? I think absolutely, if, yeah. If I may, um, the alliance with um, with with conservatives and the right was partially about the threat of the Soviet Union or of communism at home. But another way to say that is that it was really this super emphasis that threat of socialism led them to emphasize economic liberties as being like the nose on the face of, of 20th century libertarianism became like the most important feature. And that had other effects too. It led libertarians now to be, to see themselves as natural allies of big business. And the idea about free markets versus free big business, libertarians now are increasingly willing to say, well, we're, we're with big business because these are our allies. And that tension between a commitment to free markets, which you see in the early American, the first American libertarians, such as Benjamin Tucker, um, Lysander Spooner, um, to some degree, William, William Lloyd Garrison, that that commitment to free markets against big business gets changed in the 20th century, where all of a sudden to be a libertarian means to be see your allies among the big business people. And we trace this kind of really interesting, long, sometimes uncomfortable fact that libertarians, while claiming to be for free markets and not for big business, are often find themselves being supported by big businesses. Uh, and be, being allies of, of big business, um, not just in the 20th century, though that's obviously been the case with lots of big donors of the Koch, Koch, the Koch family, for example, funding um, libertarianism causes, also being libertarians and big business people. But you find it also with um, you know, great heroes of the libertarian movement from the from the 19th century, such as Richard Cobden. So Richard Cobden helped lead this mass campaign in the middle of the 19th century against the corn laws, to lower these tariffs that have been artificially raising the price of imported grains, which the, those tariffs help their aristocrats. They help the landed aristocrats with their large land land holdings, but at the on the backs of the poor, the working poor, the manufacturing class. And so Cobden argued against tariffs, which is a classically libertarian, a typical libertarian position, free trade across borders. Um, but they did it in a way that was being funded often and by significant in significant part by uh, the Manchester manufacturers. So manufacturers and, and, and Cobden himself was a manufacturer in, in, from Manchester. So you had this uneasy sometimes alliance between libertarians who have these principled commitments to freedom, including economic liberty, and then they are seen as allies by big business people whose interests they see, they perceive libertarians as supporting. And that's been one of the complicated features of libertarianism from the 19th century through the 20th, and are probably going to the, into the future as well. And it's a really contested, difficult terrain for libertarians. 
are we for big business or are we for um for free markets and the racial elements come in to do it too as well if you want to talk about that at some point yeah no i definitely uh i i want to cover that i think i'll um you know, you know, just to, to touch on your on the point about big business, because this was a question I had, I had, you know, about, you know, what libertarians think about maybe notions of, of antitrust, um, or the idea that, you know, big business can operate in a way that's, you know, either monopolistic or, or, you know, operating like, like oligopolies, uh, and uh, that threat against freedom as much as as maybe, uh, you know, big, you know, big, big government. Yeah, Matt, you want to go with that one? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, um, and and one that doesn't admit of a univocal answer, I think. Um, but it illustrates, I think, a, a split within libertarianism that that we haven't talked about yet, which is a split between what we call in the book strict libertarians um, and what we call kind of contemporary classical liberals. Um, so, you know, if you think of people who we sort of identify publicly as, as libertarian thinkers, right? There, there are people like Robert Nozick and Murray Rothbard and Ayn Rand, but there are also people like Milton Friedman, uh, like Friedrich Hayek, uh, like Richard Epstein, perhaps. Uh, and there are some pretty significant differences between those individuals, despite the fact that they all believe that um, private property is really important, uh, free markets are very valuable, government authority must be much more strictly limited, and so on. Um, people like Rothbard and Rand, uh, we identify as strict libertarians because um, they tend to take a fairly absolutist position on those issues uh, and hold that in a sense, the the proper resolution of public policy problems can be decided as a matter of philosophical first principles, right? So it's it's you know you start with the law of equal freedom or the non-aggression principle or self-ownership or something, and then you know through through derivations A through B, you come to a conclusion on uh, antitrust law, right, um, or whatever it might be. Friedman and Epstein and um, Hayek, on the other hand, they don't operate in quite that way. These thinkers tend to be more consequentialist um, than uh, deontological in their moral approach to issues, right? So they they think um, they think that free markets are good and the government authority must be limited, but they think that because they have certain beliefs about the consequences of free markets or the consequences of limiting or expanding government authority. Um, they tend to be more, because they're consequentialists, they tend to be more empirical in their approach to social problems and less a priori. Um, and they also, as a result of their empiricism and the pluralism that they bring to these issues, they tend to be a little bit less hardline than the strict libertarians in their public policy positions. So while strict libertarians like Rothbard or Nozick or Rand tend to be either anarcho-capitalists who think that there ought to be no government at all, or minimal statists who think that the government's function should be limited strictly to the protection of individual rights, classical liberals like Hayek and Epstein tend to allow for a bit more room for state intervention in the economy. Uh, they tend to allow for um, the state provision of some public goods, for instance, 
uh, to solve what they perceive to be collective action problems that uh, markets or voluntary action are insufficient to address on their own. Uh, they often uh, allow for some redistribution of income by the state, um, sometimes on grounds of collective action problems, sometimes just on grounds that uh, there is a, a legitimate function to be served in achieving distributive justice or, or relieving poverty, at least, um, that uh, individual action is, is, again, insufficient to realize on its own. Um, and they also, I think, tend to have a, at least a more open mind with respect to the legitimacy of antitrust regulations and other, other government action designed to uh, ensure the competitiveness of the market order, right? So Hayek, Hayek and Epstein and Friedman all think that competitive markets are really good, um, but they also believe that at least in some cases, markets can become uncompetitive through various causes. Uh, and when that's the case, it's at least an open question whether some form of government intervention would be appropriate in order to restore or uh, enhance the competitiveness of markets. Maybe not, right? I mean, it might be that the government cure is going to be um, worse than the, the problem uh, that it's trying to address. So we always need to keep that skepticism of authority in mind. Uh, but they're not, they don't write it off as a matter of principle in the way that someone like Murray Rothbard or Robert Nozick uh, would do, right? So if you're a Rothbard or a Nozick, the question of the effectiveness of antitrust regulation doesn't even come up um, because it's ruled out uh, on first principle as an immoral violation of property rights. It's always a little bit more complicated. Um, I mean, but uh, but with Nozick, uh, it actually is, is significantly more complicated given some stuff he says about um, what he talks about, the, you know, the Lockean proviso and um, issues of monopoly that kind of arise from that. So we can we can get into those weeds sure. if you want. But that's in terms of a broad brush distinction. I think that's uh, that what I said is, is fairly accurate there. I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah, no, I think that that's a satisfactory answer. Um, you know, I, I think the question that, that it, it brings up for me is just, you know, in talking about these, you know, strict libertarians versus, um, you know, maybe more consequentialist oriented libertarians uh, or others uh, that, that that don't necessarily fit into those categories of just how libertarians uh, think about the optimal size of the state. You know, what what are the actual, uh, you know, necessary functions of a state and what are things that, you know, maybe a classical liberal would think uh, the state should provide, but a libertarian would say that's going too far. Yeah, and so all our characteristics, those spatial characteristics we talked about, they come in more intense and less less intensified forms. And if you want to switch the metaphor, you could think of like a a sphere with different different lines going through it in different directions, each indicating one of the um, six characteristics we talked about. So if you're skeptical of authority, one of our uh, markers of membership in the, in the libertarian family, you might be like extremely skeptical of authority. And think the government cannot have has no role at all, or you might think like let's say along all in public choice theorists, people who emphasize government failure, that governments often fail, but sometimes they they can work. So if you're Milton Friedman, you think you know there's a fair bit of stuff the government can do. It can provide a safety net. It can provide perhaps a different kinds of negative in, cleverly devised uh, um, uh, negative income tax kind of programs. It can provide support for public schooling through vouchers, for example. So they're skeptical of authority. They don't want to have the state run all these programs, think that would be a mistake. Yet they're not so skeptical of authority 
that they think any government program is necessarily going to go bad. That if you have a voucher program or if you have a negative income tax or a guaranteed basic income or something like that, instead of a welfare state, that is that even that's going to go wrong. So every one of these dimensions allows a more intensified, uh, distilled libertarianism or a little softer one in some places and softer others are harder in different places. And because of that variation, you get more intense libertarianism in all these different kinds of shapes and, and, and dimensions. It's not just one thing. It's not just the, the pure view, as we're sometimes told, through a necessary and sufficient condition approach. It's this very um, alive, very diverse um, group, very, very, very diverse um, history, uh, historical tradition, tradition, and yet they're aligned and very and definitely identifiable as libertarians. And just to, to take sort of the other side of that, um, um, that tension within libertarianism, right? So, I mean, on the one hand, you have a kind of dispute between minimal state libertarians and classical liberals, right? People who think the state should be very narrowly constrained and people who think that the state could maybe be a little bit bigger in some respects. Uh, the other side is the dispute between minimal state libertarians and, and anarchists, uh, which is just a really interesting and exciting debate for for me anyways. I've, I always enjoy um, reading uh, arguments uh, along these, these issues. Um, you know, so you have Lysander Spooner, for instance, in the 19th century, who's um, one of the more kind of famous anarchists in the United States uh, intellectual history, uh, and then Gustave de Molinari in France, who who John mentioned earlier. Um, and there's this, you know, Molinari approaches this from a kind of economic perspective, right? Like, you know, if we think the markets are so great, why not have markets do everything? Spooner's view, right, and the view that gets picked up later by people like Murray Rothbard is a more moralistic form of anarchism. And the idea there is, um, look, if individual rights are really sacrosanct, then you can't automatically justify a state simply on the grounds that it's going to function to protect individual rights, because the mechanism by which states seek to protect individual rights might itself violate individual rights and therefore be illegitimate. So if states are to be defined as an entity that claim uh, and exercise a monopoly on the use of force within a geogra given geographical area, then part of what that entails is the state preventing other individuals from using force, even in ways that would be permissible given libertarian first principles, right? So on libertarian first principles, if you own, if you own your body and you have a right to negative freedom from certain kinds of interference by others, then you have a right to also enforce that right. Uh, so if someone tries to steal your stuff, you can use force to stop them. Uh, someone's physically attacking them, you can use force in defense. The state, in some ways, prohibits that kind of behavior. It might allow you to exercise self-defense in certain narrowly defined circumstances, but it's certainly not going to license you to you know, go to the criminal's house and use force to get your stuff back, right, and exercise punishment on the criminal. Those activities the state claims as its own. But to Rothbard, that's illegitimate, right? For the state to claim a right that belongs to everybody as its own exclusive prerogative is a kind of illegitimate usurpation of individual rights. Um, and even if it works, right, even if it works out to be the case that the state, that under a state system, fewer rights are violated, you have fewer thefts or fewer murders or whatever, to Rothbard's view, that's besides the point. You can't violate rights 
even if it's going to lead to really good consequences. And if states therefore necessarily involve the violation of individual rights, then they are necessarily illegitimate. And all this blather about a social contract, right? We consented to it. That's all just nonsense, according to people like Rothbard and Spooner, right? We never signed any contract. Uh, and the idea that we are tacitly consenting to government authority simply because we haven't packed up and left um, is also something that they view with uh, with derision. So uh, I don't know. I'm not an anarchist myself. Uh, like I, I don't, I don't think the view and the arguments for it work at the end of the day. But there's just something so uncompromising and radical, and, and use a technical philosophical term, badass about these positions that I just, I always really enjoy reading the anarchists, and and I can't help for cheering for them, even uh, even though I don't ultimately think they make it. And those and those badass positions that Matt was just describing, they often lead in surprising directions. So you find in Rothbard, we didn't have a, a chapter on, on environmentalism in our book, just because we ran out of gas and the book was getting too long. But there are some fascinating, there's a fascinating history of libertarian um, environmentalism. And one piece of it just connected to what Matt was just saying, Rothbard, you know, says that people have rights and they can't be violated. And that means you can't violate the rights of other people. And in places that leads Rothbard um, in the writing in the mid 20th century to become a really deep, a deep ecologist or a, a deep, a deep green, a deep, deep, deep green. So at one point he says that the structures of industrial production are all a lot, all have all developed these forms, these technological forms, which include burning fossil fuels and letting the stuff go into the atmosphere, particles going into other people's lungs, dirtying other, other people's water. Those are all rights violations. And in fact, the whole path of industrial development, Rothbard suggests at some, some points is a moral error and a mistake. And if you'd actually had a truly libertarian if you follow libertarian principles seriously, as Rothbard is want to insist that we do, um, we would have a completely different structure of an economy with much more, much less pollution, as we as we would call it. And this is it's such a really interesting, you know, different ways this this single doctrine can become extremely progressive or something like um, you know reactionary, depending on the environment and the the mood and the and the era in which the person is presenting the the ideas. Uh, yeah, I would I would love to to hear a little bit about the tension between you know progressive libertarianism and reactionary libertarianism, specifically on you know questions of civil rights and you know where libertarians fall on the question of you know how you know whether we should or should not do do things you know potentially using the state to ameliorate the impacts of discrimination. Yeah, I'll say a few things about that, Matt, if I may. I mean, this this yeah. is kind of a remarkable, a, a, a remarkable line in our story. Um, if you think about the libertarians of the um, mid mid eighteen sixties, sixties into the seventies, um, you know, the libertarians were extreme abolitionists in the way I I described. They advocated and and, and were involved with some schemes to free to to, to um arm enslaved people to encourage slave revolts. Now, there are, libertarians are deeply involved in these these attempts to find some method to free the enslaved people immediately. And yet a hundred years later, people in that same family, identifiably libertarians, are opposing the Civil Rights Act, um, you know, uh, opposing Martin Luther King holiday, all these, kind, all these kinds of things that are like, really? But why are you doing that? And we think a lot of the reason really is that 
in these different eras, there are different kinds of grand ideas that fix the attention of libertarians. And they kind of cluster themselves in a certain area. Um, and, and they sort of take on a view of some, some things that are vivid to them in one era, like the importance of freeing enslaved peoples, doesn't that 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 commitment to individualism and individual rights that, that led them to be so strongly anti and so strongly abolitionist made them somewhat blind to the more what we call rights respecting racism that we're more familiar with in the 20th century. So they could see individual rights being violated in the case of an enslaved person clearly, and they saw it more clearly than most of the people, most of their contemporaries. Libertarians were the most radical people advocating the rights of these enslaved people in a in a pure form that very few other people would would go along with them for. And yet, a hundred years later, they really couldn't because of their commitment to individualism. They didn't see a rights violation if some property owner decided to put up a, a, a sign on his lunch counter saying, "You know, no black people can be served here." Why? Because economic liberties matter a lot. We should protect the economic liberties. We, we, you know, what they would say, what they, what libertarians said in that era was, well, you know, we care about all people and everyone's rights, but that includes the economic liberties of business owners. And the fact that there could be pervasive race in, racism in a society that would effectively lead individuals not to be being served and therefore as a whole class being put down and, you know, put, ha having their opportunities diminished, that just wasn't visible to them. They were so focused on the, on the individuals. Another little piece that we that we discovered with great interest, even regarding the um, the radical, um, we would now say radically racially progressive libertarians of the 19th century, although they were, as I said, extreme in their commitment to abolitionism. Now, we found in this most the most important libertarian journal, Liberty Liberty Magazine, after abolition passed, um, there's not there's there's not a single discussion about how African-Americans are doing in America after being freed. They have their rights now, they've been freed, story over, that seems to be, that seems to be the attitude. They're not, they're not focusing on the sort of broader social questions, well, how are they getting along? They just want to know, are their rights being violated or not? And that's a, a strength of libertarianism, that clarity, that gave them clarity at that in morally dark moments in the past, but it also made them, surprisingly, um, uh, blind or at least dim, dim visioned regarding other threats to us uh, to, to, to minority cultures now, for example, more minority races now. In a way, it's even worse than that, right? So, I mean, you know, as John, as John mentioned, right, there's this kind of blindness in libertarian theory, uh, even to the idea of rights respecting racism, right? Like, so that's that's a that's a problem that e even the pure theoretical form of libertarianism doesn't seem well suited to address um, because of its ex sort of exclusive focus on individualism and individual rights. But in practice, <laughs> in practice, libertarianism was almost even worse in, in the 20th century um, because, of course, much of what was going on, you know, up through the 1950s and 60s wasn't rights respecting racism. It was it was rights violating racism right i mean it was it was people being assaulted and lynched um and kidnapped uh and you would think that libertarians who are committed to the dignity and rights of of individuals would have something to say about that um and you would be largely disappointed uh <laughs> in that expectation so you know take someone like friedrich hayek for instance who in the 50s and 60s was 
making some efforts to distance himself from political conservatism as it existed in the United States. So um, 1957, uh, Hayek gives this lecture, which would ultimately serve as the appendix of his book, The Constitution of Liberty. The title of the lecture was Why I'm Not a Conservative. Um, and in that lecture, Hayek is trying to show why he's not a conservative, but in particular, why he's not a conservative of the kind of national review brand, which was at that time kind of the defining journal of conservative ideas and politics in America. Um, the most philosophically um, inclined person on the National Review board was, was Russell Kirk, um, who was a kind of agrarian traditionalist sort of conservative. Uh, and and um, Hayek definitely wanted to show why he wasn't that. Um, but uh, under the, the leadership of Buckley, National Review had a very kind of pro-segregationist editorial line. Buckley wrote this essay called Why the South Must Prevail, which was basically an apology for Southern segregation um, and the importance of maintaining the Southern way of life, um, you know, against the imposition of the federal government uh, and in defense of these, you know, established hierarchies. And you'd think like, that would be something that Hayek might have something to say about, right? Uh, if he's really wanting him to distance himself from conservatism, but he doesn't say anything about it in that lecture. Um, he doesn't say anything about it essentially in any of his published writings, not just that essay, but just the problem of segregation and racism and violence in the American context um, doesn't appear to be even on his radar. Uh, and, and that's striking in Hayek, but it's, it's not just Hayek, uh, that, that, that problem <laughs> manifests itself in it's, it's true of most of the libertarian movement in the United States, um, during that era with some notable exceptions. Push back against that a little bit, if I may, I mean, I, I, I the broad lines, Matt, you know, we've talked it through many times and I agree, but I think it's really important to emphasize that. There were some pretty remarkable statements um, in that era in the U.S. by leading libertarians. Ayn Rand's essay against racism is, I think, a really striking essay explaining why Jim Crow is wrong and why racism in all forms is the most pure form of anti-humanism because it reduces a human being to its to biological characteristics, which is the most gross insult there could be of a person. And regarding Hayek, it is true. Matt and I agree. We wish there would be more, had been more explicit writing about um, solutions to the problem of these egregious injustices. But there's a really striking reference in Hayek. Um, Matt, we never talked about that, I don't think. There's a really striking reference. It's really important, I think, about Hayek and race. It's in law, legislation, and liberty. It's in a footnote, but it's important. And it's this incredible passage where Hayek's describing an earlier period in his life during World War II when the bombing's going on in England. And he's thinking to himself, well, if I get killed, I should find some place for my kids to go. So he starts sending letters to friends all around the world saying, "If I could, you, would you take my children from me? And Hayek, by the way, is, is working. He's, he realizes that that's actually, actually kind of a decision procedure of like working behind a veil of ignorance, not knowing where in the society your child's going to land, which society would you choose to send your child to? He's working out something like the veil of ignorance, you know, 40 years before Rawls. We, we talked about that in our social justice chapter. But the key little bit in that footnote is Hayek says, well, looking across the world and not knowing 
where my childhood would be placed, what kind of a family, I would choose the U.S., he says. And then he adds, I would choose the U.S. because I have a pretty strong presumption that because of the racism in America, my white child would be unlikely to be placed with a black family. Therefore, they'd be placed with a white family. That's so I choose America. But he suggests that if his family, if he didn't know that, if there weren't that little hole in the veil of ignorance, if his child could be placed with any family in America, including a black family in America, he would not choose America. That's not just to show that Hayek cared about racism, but it shows that although he didn't talk about it as much as we think he should have and, 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 and could have, um, he was very aware of this you know, egregious injustice going on in America. And I'll just add, Matt, this, this isn't a contradiction, but you just to be super clear, the libertarians were opposed to Jim Crow uh, up and down. And the ones who, when they opposed the Civil Rights Act, they opposed Articles 2 and 7, where they talked about the economic liberty interests of of, of employer of employ, of uh, business owners, but they were certainly opposed to the civil rights, uh, the Jim Crow laws. There are violations of liberty. They would force people to have yeah. separate, provide separate bathrooms, which cost them more money and all, all these kinds of libertarian kind of reasons you can figure out. No, no, I think, and that that's right, right? So, I mean, I think, the, the lesson here is is not like well 20th century libertarians were racist um the lesson is yeah they thought segregation was wrong they thought uh lynchings were wrong that just didn't strike them as something that was important enough to spend a lot of time talking and writing about uh their fo that wasn't the salient threat to individual liberty for them the salient threat was you know the next regulation that the government in the place on um, economic liberty, um, which, yeah, so it's, it's, it's significant, I think, um, in terms of you know, information about where their priorities lay uh, and how those priorities differed from the libertarians of, of the 19th century. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly don't think that, you know, the, you'd want to conclude that um, they positively supported these, these racist measures. They were just for the most part, conspicuously silent on them. Murray Rothbard here is a, I mean, you mentioned the Rand essay, which is was quite good. And Murray Rothbard um, devoted even more energies to um, speaking against racism, though his case is quite complicated for different reasons um, as we, we explore in the book. Yeah, and I, I should mention to listeners that, you know, there's there's so much in this book that we just won't, won't be able to cover. Um, and, you know, you know, one thing that I, that I think, you know, listeners, if they want to, hear about uh, how, how libertarians think about, you know, warfare and militarism and the, and the role of, uh, of of militaries in dealing with conflicts. Um, I'll leave that for the book. But but I think, you know, the, the sort of the last question that I want to ask you to uh, is if you could just talk a little bit about where libertarianism stands today. Uh, and also, if you could just talk a little bit about this, this concept that you're both uh, sort of, uh, you know, look at a bleeding heart libertarianism. Matt, do you want to? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll start, I suppose. Um, so I'll just, I'll, I'll tell it autobiographically if, you, if you'll, if you'll allow me to, um, I arrived at Brown, um, you know, very committed to the ideas of individual freedom and the, and the free society as I understood it. And I had many late night conversations with my dear colleagues at Brown because none of whom accepted my views. And I was constantly surrounded by people who saw the world, <laughs> world very differently than I do. But I had one really memorable conversation late one night at the, at the Brown faculty club with David Estland. And Corey Bretschneider, two of my my best friends at Brown, and they're both you know very very strongly and adamantly and very smartly on the left. And we were going back and forth as we had done for for years. And at one point late that night, they said to I said to them, sort of in, in exasperation, 
I said, you know, Dave and Corey, if if you if I if I thought that the free market would leave people behind, it would predictably leave some class of people behind forever. I would never be a libertarian. I think it has to the system to be just has to bring everyone along through time. Anyone who's willing to work and be part of the system. And Dave Eston looked at me and said, they just stopped and looked at me. Dave Eston said, well, why don't you just say that? And I was like, yeah, I should just I should just say that. And if you say that, if you say that a society, a just society should not leave any class behind, you're basically saying you affirm something like social justice. So that conversation, that, 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 that late night conversation got me writing Free Market Fairness, which was my attempt to bring, as I mentioned, Hayek and Rawls together, showing what a corrective to Rawls might look like and a corrective to Hayek might look like, where we have a true respect for individual agency in the economic realm, something Rawls is very weak on, I think. But you also have this you know, powerful idea of social justice, which he's very strong on. And it led me also to develop some of these ideas, like high, showing affinities between Hayek and Mises also, by the way, uh, methodologically um, with, with Rawls, that those connections can be, are, are deep in the philosophy, not just on the superficial policies that come out of it. So I came to Bleeding Heart that way. And my, Matt started this blog, I read, I read about the exact same time, right? I think, I think the year before my book came out, Matt, you started the blog. And there was a whole explosion of people who were, you know, we part of it was the Cold War was had was was had ended, and libertarian. The way I think of it is, if I can just add another metaphor, the way I think of it is that libertarian is like this big ocean, all these different parts of liberty that one could explore. But during the Cold War War era, there was such a collection of boats, all these libertarian vessels around the idea of socialism, attacking socialism, fixated on socialism at home and abroad. That they're almost like a sea social was like a sea anchor holding the whole libertarian fleet together in this one part of the ocean anti-socialism roughly or pro-economic liberty we could say when socialism collapsed and the sea anchor dropped into the depths of the sea all of a sudden now all these boats were kind of freed and to start wandering around and seeing where else they might go some groups headed off towards a social justice direction that's the bleeding heart group other groups went back to sort of paleo-libertarian um, doctrines, which we talk about to some, to, uh, to, at some length in the book. And the, the era we're in now, I think there are both sort of maybe free, it's, it's a strange period of libertarian time because there's so much ocean to explore and libertarians aren't this force doing one identifiable thing. But I'm optimistic that through time, we're going to find new places, new new kind, new dimensions of liberty, new ports to study, new whole new oceans perhaps as yet undiscovered. Matt, do you want to say more about about that 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 period? Yeah. So, because the the anchor has has been severed from the, all right, there's there's now this um, it's just this pluralism in libertarianism um, as as different people, right? So, I mean, socialism was this force that libertarianism kind of defined itself in opposition to, right? And so, in that sense, libertarianism is a reactionary view in that, right? It it is what it's uh, it's it's not what it's against, right? It defines itself in terms of that which it opposes, which, which it views as the antithesis of freedom, whether that's socialism for the 19th century British and French libertarians or slavery for the 19th century American libertarians. And so once once socialism is no longer there for libertarianism to define itself against, it's not entirely clear what libertarians are for, how how we're to understand these ideas of freedom and property and skepticism of authority um, without a clear contrast um, to aid in that process. Uh, and so you get 
a variety of different forms of libertarianism emerging from that that chaos. Uh, one of which is is the bleeding heart libertarian movement that which John and I are both attracted. The other is the paleo libertarian movement, which which John uh, mentioned briefly. But you know this this is a movement that has its roots in. Uh, the thought of of Murray Rothbard in the latter part of his career, um, people like Llewellyn Rockwell, who served um, as the president of the Ludwig von Mises Institute in in Auburn, Alabama, uh, people like uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe, um, who is a a thinker who has written several books on um, on democracy and and anarcho capitalism, and who has a an exceptionally um, broad following uh online uh and among and among young people not very much in academia uh but he has a, a very broad popular following and so you're you're one of the things you're seeing now is a kind of market split between um what you might call sort of academic libertarianism and movement libertarianism uh so if you look at the libertarian movement right now especially in the united states uh, and especially as manifested in the libertarian party uh of the united states um that has since 2016 or so uh, taken a very sharp rightward turn uh, in terms of its position on immigration, uh, on abortion, uh, on cultural phenomenon such as you know wokeness, what the libertarian attitude sort of wokeness should be uh, in terms of transgender rights. Uh, the Libertarian Party is coming out very hard and very, very kind of Trumpian in its uh, its desire to sort of prod and poke and annoy the left um, in a way that you didn't necessarily see in um, earlier instantiations of the Libertarian Party, uh, you know, like the Gary Johnson campaign from uh, earlier this this, uh, this century. Um, but you don't see anything much like that going on in academic libertarianism. Um, this this kind of rightward paleo leaning turn in libertarianism seems to be mostly a popular phenomenon, whereas in the academy, um, what you see uh, tends to be more, more pluralistic, I would say, more moderate, um, maybe a little bit more on the BHL side, though I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that BHL has anything like a monopoly on, on academic thought. Um, but it's just, it's interesting to see that, you know, the academics and the um, and the popular movements are, are are so different in kind of which form of libertarianism dominates. I should mention there's a there's a third form too that I um, that is kind of emerging from this chaos, which is in many ways a kind of resurrection of the 19th century radicalism that you saw in American libertarians like Lysander Spooner um, and Benjamin Tucker. Um, these libertarians, which sometimes called left libertarians, or sometimes called mutualists. Uh, sometimes called uh, market capitalists, people here like Gary Chartier, um, Roderick Long, um, uh, Kevin Carson, associated with the Center for the Stateless Society, all uh, adopt a, a very radical form of libertarianism. They tend to be anarchists, um, but they tend to be also very skeptical of American capitalism um, as, as an economic system that is consistent with um, libertarian principles. So while the 20th century libertarians like Nozick and, and Rand were, were quite concerned to defend something like American capitalism as 
um, you know, the, the, the more just alternative to Soviet era, you know, Soviet kind of communism, um, these left libertarians tend to emphasize the, the flaws in American capitalism, the way in which American capitalism is inconsistent with libertarian principles in terms of the state privileges that are doled out to large corporations um, uh, and the hindrances that are put on competition upon labor mobility um, by the state. Uh, and so when you see um, you know, excessive levels of hierarchy uh, and domination in contemporary workplaces, when you see rising levels of inequality, uh, and when people on the left point those things out and say, uh, see, look how unjust American capitalism is, the left libertarians say, yes, you're right. <laughs> those things are unjust. Uh, you're right about the diagnosis, but you're wrong about the cause uh, for that problem. It's not that American capitalism is unjust because it's too libertarian. It's that American capitalism is unjust because it's not libertarian enough. Uh, so it's a really, it's a really interesting and distinctive uh, position that's trying to, in some ways, build bridges uh, with the left in terms of you know common cause in opposition to. Um, uh, certain maladies of the contemporary economic scene, um, but but combined with an attempt to um, kind of shift the the diagnosis of those problems and the and the cure for those problems in terms of what would make society more just, um, according to um, both libertarians and the left. And Caleb, can I, can I just add a word to, a word to that, if I may? Absolutely, yeah. So just so we 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 say that in the contemporary period where we are now. There are these sort of three schools, three distinct schools that are vying for the mantle of libertarianism, the bleeding heart school, the paleo libertarian school, and the mutualist uh, mutualist school, the sort of new socialists, we might call them. But it's worth pointing out that there's a fourth school, and the fourth school is really what we might call the traditionalists. The traditionalists are the people who think that libertarianism really was defined by that group, that Cold War band in the 20th century America. And it's that cold, and it's that traditionalist libertarian school who would think about the BHL crowd, the paleo crowd, and the mutualist crowd as all being what I said before as linos, libertarians in name only. There, there, there are many people still who think that, in fact, Rothbard and Rand did define what libertarianism is, and all these new schools are sort of fake versions of what libertarian libertarianism really is. And in many ways, our book is really written to those people. It's written to them to say to them, if you think that we're all linos, libertarians in name only, and you know what libertarianism is, and that's what it was as defined in the middle of the 20th century, look back into the history a little bit, and you will find recognizable ancestors of all your heroes from the 20th century who take very different positions on all these things than what you think. The history is wider, it's broader, it's more diverse than what you think. Being a lino, a libertarian in name only, there's a, there are many more people who belong in the libertarian family with very different views on things than one might expect. Libertarianism is a view that is by its very nature, and maybe it's unsurprising, that we're, it's contentious, we contend with each other, <laughs> we're fractious, we're idiosyncratic, we're not easily bandable together, we are like cats who go our own different kinds of ways. And I think now we're in a period where there's a lot of confusion of what it means to be a libertarian, but I'm actually hopeful about this. I think that there's a this will look, be looked back upon as a really fertile period of thinking and discovery and exploration and fusionisms in some in some cases that will be um, open up the era for a new 
fourth wave of libertarianism yet yet to be described. Well, John and Matt, thank you so much for for being guests on the New Books Network. Um, the book is The Individualists uh, from Princeton University Press. I, I highly recommend people check it out, uh, and and I, I think you'll you'll definitely you'll definitely learn something or two. Thank you, Caleb. Thank you.